Hello, everybody, and welcome into this episode number 29 of the Bible Reading Podcast, entitled, Dear Bible Reading Podcast, Should I Marry Two Sisters? Plus, we're going to ask and answer the question, is everything in the Bible true? Well, I got an interesting letter this week from a friend of the podcast, and boy, oh boy, is he in a mess. Maybe we can help him out. So I'm going to read the letter to you and see if you might have any ideas how to help my friend. Dear random podcast host, he says, it's actually Chase. My name is Chase. Uh, He says, my name is Yaakov Ben Yishak. And I have a problem I'm hoping that you can help me with. It is fairly complicated, but it all started when I stole the blessing of the firstborn from my mean-tempered, smelly, hairy, and unreasonable brother, Hesaw. He would have wasted it anyway, but when he found out, that lunkhead decided to kill me. Fortunately, I ran away from home and went far away to my uncle's compound, where I promptly fell in love with my cousin, Rachel. Yeah, I know, you Americans kind of find that icky, but it was mostly okay where I came from, and Rahel is so hot that I literally cried the first time I saw her. Oh, gracious. No, I'm not emo, he continues. Anyway, so I asked my uncle if I could marry Rahel, and he said yes, and we had a marriage and everything, and it was great. Maybe I celebrated a little too hard, if you get my drift, but it was my wedding, And most people only get one of those. So anyway, after the big wedding, me and the wife went to the tent for the woohoo, let the reader understand, and in the morning I woke up not to Rahel, but to her way less hot sister Leah. So, as any nephew would do in this situation, I went to my uncle and demanded an explanation. He said that I shouldn't worry, that he would give me Rahel and Leah, and that all I had to do was work for him for 14 years. 14 years! That is a long time. But, you know, Rahel being so beautiful she made me cry and all, I agreed to it. Well, fast forward a few years, and believe it or not, being married to a couple of sisters and their servants, don't ask, long story, is complicated. I've had a bunch of kids by Rahel and Leah and their servants, and now my wives all fight over me and over getting pregnant and everything, and one of them appears to be a thief. And honestly, I sometimes think maybe it would have been easier if I had just let Hesaw knock my block off. What do I do? Signed, Harassed and Hopeless in Haran. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Well, harassed and hopeless, never having married sisters before, and never having married a first cousin before, and never having married any concubines or servants of my wife before, not even one really, I'm honestly at a loss for how to help you. Let me think about that for a minute, and while we think about it, let's read Genesis chapter 30, our first Bible passage of the day. This is Genesis 30, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. When Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she envied her sister. Give me sons or I will die, she said to Jacob. Jacob became angry with Rachel and said, Am I in God's place who has withheld offspring from you? Then she said, Here is my maid Bilhah. Go sleep with her, and she'll bear children for me, so that through her I too can build a family. So Rachel gave her slave Bilhah to Jacob his wife, 
and he slept with her. Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Rachel said, God has vindicated me. Yes, he has heard me and give me a son. So she named him Dan. Rachel's slave Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Rachel said, In my wrestlings with God I have wrestled with my sister and won. And she named him Naphtali. When Leah saw that she stopped having children, she took her slave Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Leah's slave Zilpah bore Jacob a son. Then Leah said, What good fortune! And she named him Gad. When Leah's slave Zilpah bore Jacob a second son, Leah said, I am happy that the women call me happy. So she named him Asher. Reuben went out during the wheat harvest and found some mandrakes in the field. When he brought them to his mother Leah, Rachel asked, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But Leah replied to her, Isn't it enough that you have taken my husband? Now you also want to take my son's mandrakes? Well then, Rachel said, He can sleep with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. Oh dear. When Jacob came in from the field that evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come with me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So Jacob slept with her that night. And I realize I probably need to give this episode a PG rating. Verse 17, God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has rewarded me for giving my slave to my husband. And she named him Issachar. Then Leah conceived again and bore Jacob a sixth son. God has given me a good gift, Leah said. This time my husband will honor me because I have borne six sons for him. And she named him Zebulon. Later, Leah bore a daughter and named her Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel. He listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son, and she said, God has taken away my disgrace. She named him Joseph and said, May the Lord add another son to me. After Rachel gave birth to Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, Send me on my way so that I can return to my homeland. Give me my wives and my children that I have worked for and let me go. You know how hard I have worked for you. But Laban said to him, If I have found favor with you, stay. I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Then Laban said, Name your wages and I will pay them. So Jacob said to him, You know how I have served you and how your herds have fared with me, for you had very little before I came, but now your wealth is increased. The Lord has blessed you because of me, and now when will I also do something for my own family? Laban asked, What should I give you? And Jacob said, Hmm, you don't need to give me anything if you do this one thing for me. I will continue to shepherd and keep your flock. Let me go through all your sheep today and remove every sheep that is speckled or spotted, every dark-colored sheep among the lambs and the spotted and speckled among the female goats. Such will be my wages. In the future, when you come to check on my wages, my Honesty will testify for me. If I have any female goats that are not speckled or spotted, or any lambs that are not black, they will be considered stolen. Good, said Laban. Let it be as you have said. 
That day Laban removed the streaked and spotted male goats and all the speckled and spotted female goats, every one that had any white on it, and every dark-colored one among the lambs, and he placed his sons in charge of them. He put a three-day journey between himself and Jacob. Jacob, meanwhile, was shepherding the rest of Laban's flock. Jacob then took branches of fresh poplar, almond, and plain wood and peeled the bark, exposing white strips on the branches. He set the peeled branches in the troughs in front of the sheep and the water channels where the sheep came to drink, and the sheep bred when they came to drink. The flocks bred in front of the branches and bore streaked, speckled, and spotted young. Jacob separated the lambs and made the flocks face the streaked sheep and the completely dark sheep in Laban's flocks. Then he set his own stock apart and didn't put them with Laban's sheep. Whenever the stronger of the flock were breeding, Jacob placed the branches in the troughs in full view of the flocks and they would breed in front of the branches. As for the weaklings of the flock, he did not put out the branches. So it turned out that the weak sheep belonged to Laban and the stronger ones to Jacob. And the man became very rich. He had many flocks, female and male slaves, and camels and donkeys. Okay, so Jacob is in a mess. And spoiler alert, things are going to get a little messier before they get better. Now, before we get Back to answering the letter from our friend seeking advice. Let's take a look at one interesting detail here. The whole spotted, speckled sheep goat situation. What in the world is going on here? Now, let me say this. I am not a shepherd by trade. Well, actually, I, I am a pastor. And the word pastor in the Bible is, uh, in, at least in the Greek New Testament, is the exact same word as shepherd. So, I guess, in a sense, I am a shepherd, but more of the people variety. And I, just between you and me, I know next to nothing about sheep and goats. I sort of know what they look like. I think I've petted one or two before. But beyond that, not your guy to answer complicated questions about sheep and goats. But that said, in answer to the question, what's going on here? Let me give you the two main theories out there. And honestly, Either one of them could be true uh, it, with a high view of the Bible. And so here's theory number one. Jacob's putting peeled branches in the watering troughs of the sheep was a silly superstition and had absolutely nothing to do with the help of those sheep and how they multiplied. Jacob thought he was doing something clever, but what he was doing was, you know, the equivalent of some sort of ancient hocus pocus or an old wives tale or something like that. And it was actually God who supernaturally increased Jacob's flocks. This theory is really explained well by the website gotquestions.org. And I have a link on our website, Bible Reading Podcast. I'd love for you to go there and check it out. And there you can read a much more detailed explanation of the gotquestions.org theory about what's going on here with the sheep. I'm not going to read the whole theory, but basically the gotquestions.org theory is essentially that uh, that, that Jacob's whole stick thing didn't do anything. Um, it 
was God that did it. So hopefully that makes sense. Theory number two is much more detailed, and it's the one that's put forward by many people, including Answers in Genesis. And again, there's a link to this theory on our website, BibleReadingPodcast.com. And their theory is that Jacob's putting of these peeled branches in the water troughs was, among other things, actually giving these flocks some vitamins and minerals and other sorts of help helpful things that cause them to be healthier and uh, reproduce with more vigor. Now, I got to say, that Answers in Genesis article is pretty darn impressive. It's super long. It'll take you probably 20, 25 minutes to read it, but it's really, really deep. They made a very thorough and well-documented scientific case that Jacob might just have been onto something with those sticks in the water. Why are they so concerned with vindicating Jacob's methods? Because some people have used this passage uh, to attack and undermine the credibility of the Bible. As the AIG website says, Genesis 30 is a section of scripture often held up to ridicule by skeptics and even some of those committed to biblical inerrancy and authority, struggle with understanding and explaining it to others. So, many questions have been raised. Does Jacob's peeled bark practice have any bearing on how sheep and goats breed? Does it offer any health or reproductive value? Did God instruct Jacob in this practice? Was it his intention? And if so, was it deceitful for Jacob to seek to appropriate the flocks of Laban, his father-in-law? Was this an entirely natural phenomenon, or was there a large dose of providential direction involved? Honestly, I sort of lean towards the gotquestions.org explanation, but either way, it it wouldn't surprise me. And I, I, again, I believe either of those explanations both uphold the inerrancy of the Bible for reasons we're going to talk about in just a minute. And honestly, I think this was a a scheme of Jacob. Everything we've seen of Jacob so far shows us that he is a schemer, including his name. His heart has not been changed yet. It will be, but it's not there yet. He is still the consummate con man. And yet God, in his grace, is blessing him. So, why do I think either of these options, even though they're diametrically opposed to each other, could be the real thing and both preserve inerrancy in the Bible? And the answer is because not everything in the Bible is true. Now, I know, whoa, 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 sound the liberal alarm, ring the heretic bell, call Paul Revere and and come on, all right, hang on. I am absolutely positively, with all my heart and soul, committed to biblical inerrancy as it has been held by the giants of the faith for centuries. Without question, I believe the Bible is accurate and inerrant in all that it affirms. But, and we're going to see this in Genesis 30, there are times when sinful humans in the Bible affirm wrong things. Well, let's take our chapter here, for instance. Consider Verse three through verses three through five. Rachel said, Here is my maid Bilhah. Go sleep with her and she'll bear children for me so that through her I too can build a family. So Rachel gave her slave Bilhah to Jacob as a wife and he slept with her. Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Rachel said, God has vindicated me. Yes, he's heard me and given me a son. So she named him Dan. Well, 
Rachel was frustrated that she was not getting pregnant and having babies by Jacob. Her solution is a little sketch. She gave her servant Bilhah to her husband so that he could make babies with her. When that plan worked, Rachel concluded that God had vindicated her and given her a son. Is this true? Did God vindicate Rachel by this plan working? Should couples who are struggling to conceive um, take on an extra wife? Well, honestly, <laughs> I don't think so. I think Rachel is wrong here in justifying herself. Was Sarah doing the right thing when she gave her servant Hagar to her husband? Was she doing the right thing when she abused her servant Hagar when her plan worked? The context of the Bible shows, I think quite conclusively, that this was a wrong thing to do. There's a couple of the other examples of that too. Consider Job's friend Bildad. Job had just gone through a terrible catastrophe in his life in which he lost his children and Job's friend Bildad said to him, if your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. In other words, Bildad said, your children died because they were sinners. Well, is that true? It's in the Bible. Like a lot of things Bildad and Zophar and other friends of Job are in the Bible. But here's the problem. They're utterly wrong. Later, God takes Job's friends to task and rebukes them for their ridiculous, lousy, wrong counsel. Thus, we can't look at any of the statements of Job's friends as being truthful because God himself tells us they're not. This is in Job 42, verse 7. After the Lord had finished speaking to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Timonite, I am angry with you and your two friends, for you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. So, lots of scripture in the Bible that are said by Bildad and Zophar and Eliphaz, and it's not true. Don't put it on a coffee mug or a t-shirt or on your Facebook page because those guys were wrong. And by the way, I don't know that I've ever seen a, a mug with some of the scriptures from Job's friends, but I've definitely seen it quoted on social media. And when I do it, just kind of, you kind of scratch your head and say, man, what those guys were saying is not true. The Bible is true, but those guys were not. Or one more example. Consider the powerful and encouraging words of that great and famous prophet Zedekiah and his friends. March up and succeed, they said to the kings of Israel and Judah. Now, you could almost see that on a t-shirt or an inspirational calendar, right? Let's read the passage, First Chronicles 18. Verse 9, Now the king of Israel and king Jehoshaphat of Judah, clothed in royal attire, were sitting on his own throne, were each sitting on his own throne. They were sitting on the threshing floor at the entrance to Samaria's gate, and all the prophets were prophesying in front of them. Hey, so far so good. Prophets prophesying, right? They're going to tell us the truth, right? Well, then Zedekiah, it's a good biblical name, son of Chenana made iron horns and said, This is what the Lord says. You will gore the Arameans with these until they are finished off. 
and all the prophets were prophesying the same thing. March up to Ramoth Gilead and succeed, for the Lord will hand it over to the king. The only problem? Every one of those prophets were false prophets. According to the Bible, the Bible clearly shows us that. And their prophecies were worth as much, maybe even less, than slightly used toilet paper. Well, what about the New Testament? Surely we can trust disciples like, uh, oh, I don't know, James and John, the inner circle guys. They're going to say things that are 100% trustworthy, right? Well, let's look at Luke 9, verse 52. He sent, Jesus sent messengers ahead of him, and on the way they entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But they did not welcome him because he determined to journey to Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume them? Oh, so I guess should we call down fire from heaven on people who don't receive Jesus? Well, the unsurprising answer is no which is revealed to us in the next couple of verses when Jesus turns around and rebukes James and John for their silliness. So we don't take that as truth. So considering the vav, we can see that Sarah's example is not showing us that a good way to have kids is to give your husband another woman. Job's friends do not teach us how to encourage those who are going through tragedy, and we can learn absolutely nothing from Zedekiah, son of Chenana, about prophesying accurately. And that also means that Jacob's actions aren't infallible, and his interpretations aren't infallible, and his stick-in-the-water trough trick may not actually have been all that effective, or it may have been. We don't know one way or the other, and here's the key, because the Bible doesn't tell us one way or the other, and that's okay. We don't need to speculate in the absence of clear scripture. So what's the point? Here's the thing. The Bible is absolutely and unquestionably true in all that it affirms, but it is crucial that we make sure that we are latching onto something the Bible does affirm. Imagine a scenario where somebody who is a shepherd of, you know, sheep and goats, uh, a real shepherd, and they do exactly what Jacob did with the same sticks and everything, and their flocks don't multiply at a ridiculous rate. Does this mean that the Bible was wrong? Are the scoffers right? Have they disproved the Bible? Of course not. The Bible never affirms or denies that Jacob's stick trick was effective or not. It just doesn't tell us whether or not Rachel's contention that God vindicated her was correct. And it never directly also says that polygamy is a sin. But, on the other hand, it sure shows us how complicated it is over and over again. There are times that the behavior and words of key characters in the Bible are suspect and unbiblical in that they go against God's direct commands, and thus by context and interpreting Scripture with Scripture, we understand and follow God's words. For more about this, you can read the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy, which I completely agree with and hold to, and it's linked at the bottom of this article for episode 29 on our website, BibleReadingPodcast.com. Oh yeah, and back to our uh, advice column. Jacob, uh, son of Isaac, old buddy, I wish I knew what to tell you about your situation. It is one of the trickiest ones I have ever heard of. And it's honestly, no offense, brother, but it sounds like you've caused a lot of these problems. Next time, 
Maybe get a really good look at your wife before you actually go and consummate that marriage. That seems like good advice to me. Now, the situation you're in now, trust God, and I'm sure he will be found faithful. Oh, and uh, don't let go until he blesses you. Esther chapter 6, verse 1. That night sleep escaped the king, so he ordered the book recording daily events to be brought and read to the king. They found the written report of how Mordecai had informed on Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the entrance, when they planned to assassinate King Ahasuerus. The king inquired, What honor and special recognition had been given to Mordecai for this act? The king's personal attendants replied, Nothing has ever been done for him. The king asked, Who is in the court? Now Haman was just entering the outer court of the palace to ask the king to hang Mordecai on the gallows he had prepared for them for him. The king's attendants answered him, Haman is there, standing in the court. Have him enter, the king ordered. Haman entered, and the king asked him, What should be done for the man the king wants to honor? Haman thought to himself, who is it that the king would want to honor more than me? Haman told the king, For the man the king wants to honor, have them bring a royal garment that the king himself has worn, and a horse the king has ridden, which has a royal crown on its head. Put the garment and the horse under the charge of one of the king's most noble officials. Have them clothe the man the king wants to honor, parade him on the horse through the city square, and proclaim before him, This is what is done for the man the king wants to honor. The king told Haman, Hurry and do just as you proposed. Take a garment and a horse for Mordecai the Jew who is sitting at the king's gate. Do not leave out anything you have suggested. So Haman took the garment and the horse. He clothed Mordecai and paraded him through the city square, crying out before him, This is what is done for the man the king wants to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried off for home, mournful and with his head covered. Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened. His advisors and his wife Zeresh said to him, Since Mordecai is Jewish and you have begun to fall before him, you won't overcome him because your downfall is certain. While they were still speaking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and rushed Haman to the banquet Esther had prepared. Well, nothing like having a good, encouraging word from your wife. But boy, did he not deserve that. Mark chapter 1, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way. A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord. Make his path straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. 
John wore a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, One who is more powerful than I am is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized in the Jordan by John. As soon as he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Immediately the Spirit drove him into the desert. And he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and the angels were serving him. After John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent and believe the good news. As he passed alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Andrew and Simon, uh, Simon and Andrew, Simon's brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Follow me, Jesus told them, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, putting their nets in order. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. They went into Capernaum, and right away he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and began to teach. They were astonished at his teaching, because he was teaching them as one who had authority and not like the scribes. Just then a man with an unclean spirit was in their synagogue. He cried out, What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit threw him into convulsion, shouted with a loud voice, and came out of him. They were all amazed, and so they began to ask each other, what, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. At once the news about him spread throughout the entire vicinity of Galilee. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went into Simon and Andrew's house with James and John. Simon's mother-in-law was lying in bed with a fever, and they told him about her at once. So he went to her, took her by the hand, and raised her up. The fever left her, and she began to serve them. When evening came, after the sun had set, they brought to him all those who were sick and demon-possessed. The whole town was assembled at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and drove out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak, because they knew him. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he got up, went out, and made his way to a deserted place, and there he was praying. Simon and his companions searched for him, and when they found him, they said, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the neighboring villages, so that I may preach there too. This is why I have come. And he went into all of Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. Then a man with leprosy came to him, and on his knees begged him, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Moved with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched him. I am willing, he told him. Be made clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. Then he sternly warned them and sent him away 
telling him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go and show yourself to the priest and offer what Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Yet he went out and began to proclaim it widely and to spread the news, with the result that Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but he was out in deserted places, and they came to him from everywhere. Romans chapter 1 verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture, concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was a descendant of David according to the flesh, and was appointed to be the powerful Son of God according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. Through him... We have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the Gentiles, including you who are also called by Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, loved by God, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because the news of your faith is being reported in all the world. God is my witness who I serve with my spirit in telling the good news about his son that I constantly mention you, always asking in my prayers that if it is somehow in God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I want very much to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, to be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Now, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I often planned to come to you, but was prevented until now, in order that I might have a fruitful ministry among you, just as I have had among the rest of the Gentiles. I am obligated both to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. For though they know God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Therefore, God delivered them over in the desires of their hearts to sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served what has been created instead of the Creator who is praised forever. Amen. For this reason, God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. 
Their women exchange natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. The men in the same way also left natural relations with women and were inflamed in their lust for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own person the appropriate penalty for their error. And because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a corrupt mind so that they do what is not right. They are filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness. They are full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, and malice. They are gossip, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, senseless, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. Although they they know God's just sentence that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but even applaud others who practice them. And that, my friends, is the word of the Lord. May it be a strengthening to you. May it be an encouragement to you. May it be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. May it be to you and me both the commands of God that we obey and walk in. Good day and Godspeed to you.